So we are here for season one. I'm sorry. <laughs> we are... That's going to have to get cut. That's going to get cut. Yeah, this is all going to get cut. All right, let's try that one more time. Yeah, so here we are back with, with season two, starting with... <laughs> this is so horrible. I gotta write stuff down next time. Do you need to go like take a walk around the block? I, think I, do. I need to go upstairs and refresh my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All right, welcome back as we kick off season two of the Such Nerds podcast. Woo! I am your host tonight, Jason from Connecticut. This is Peter calling from Long Island, New York. And this is Dan from Los Angeles. Oh, we're truly, uh, we're going worldwide with this thing, huh? Nationwide, baby. From Terminus to Star's End. So here we are for episode one of our second season covering... Isaac Asimov's Foundation and Empire, the second in order of publishing of his Foundation series. Okay, so uh, in chapter one through five, which we'll be covering today, there's a few uh, key characters that we get introduced to. We start off with a general, Bell Rios, who we get a premonition right up front that he is the last of the Imperials. But he is ambitious and determined to seek out the magicians, which is the name he's using for uh, our well-known foundation and their gadgets. He solicits input from Dusumbar, the progeny of Onumbar on Cywina, to illuminate some of the mysteries of the foundation. He seeks for the foundation in foundation territory, uh, lighting off some suspicion amongst leaders of the foundation, particularly our illegitimate progeny of Hober Mallow, Pharrell. He's uh, happy. He's pretty happy, but not that happy. And um, we continue on through uh, Belrios's attempts to uh, strategically position his forces and get ready for an attack on the foundation. In the process, he pulls Dusumbar with him into the fight as an advisor under coercive uh, pretense. And he captures one of the traitors uh, who appears to be nonchalant and not particularly fond of one side winning over another. However, at the very end of chapter five, we recognize that he... Uh, acknowledges Dusum Bar for who he is and gives him a solid handshake as an ally in the uh, what they're about to undertake. That's our boy Lathan Devers. Lathan Devers, or however we choose to pronounce it. <laughs> we also uh, we also got to meet 
uh, Miss Cleo, the Emperor. <laughs> is that Ms. Cleo? Is Ms. Yeah. That's Ms. Cleo. Ms. Cleo, yeah. The, was... the Empire's cards never lie. I, was, I uh, thought it was Cleon. It's a Ms. Cleo. A Cleon the Second, the Great, in fact, but also the last of the great the emperors of the, of the First Galactic Empire. So a lot of lasts here in the beginning of our book. I wonder if it'll last. I wonder if it'll begin. <laughs> it seems like it's already over. It sounds like it. Yeah, well, it, and and that's a little bit, you know, mirrored by uh, by Deucem Barr's affect in the beginning. You know, he's kind of he's convinced that the the Harry Seldon psycho history is sort of how it's going to go. And he's like, look, you can do whatever you want, but uh, not going to make a lick of difference because the empire is going down. And this seems you know, pretty offensive to, to people from the empire, you know, I guess understandably, but um, you know, that's sort of the, his, the nature of his affect the whole time, which I'm sure for somebody like Bill Rios, who's, you know, a real up and comer probably buys into the, the empire and his career. there. probably pretty, pretty shocking you know, viewpoint. I don't, I didn't get the sense that Bell Rios really cared about the empire. He was just interested in carving out his little piece of the world <clears throat> with his own ambitions of maybe taking over the empire eventually. Um, I thought it was interesting that he went and solicited, uh, do some bar. bar is the son that's alluded to in the first book who was serving under a viceroy who was responsible for the exile of uh, Dusum's father, who was a governor on the planet. Was it Sisum? Help me out here. Sawina. Sawina. And uh, basically Dusum was the, one of the trusted members of this viceroy's guard. And, he betrayed as he betrayed him as we expected him to. It's I got excited to see that we would meet this guy. And I, I had, I had hopes that we would meet him. Um, but we're kind of past that point of his life where you get like the exciting betrayal. This is old man. Do some. Yeah. Work. It's a, it, when we finally meet the traitor, um, Lathan, he says it was 40 years prior that he, basically killed the Viceroy. So why did Rios talk to this guy? And basically because he's the only buddy who, who knows anything about the foundation, you know, sort of somewhat even secondhand, really, um, you know, basically his, his son, uh, I mean, he, his father had met, with uh with Hober Mallow. So it's sort of like a link for somebody who actually, you know, met with them and saw, you know, basically the initial mission that they had. Um, but he doesn't know this when he approaches him at first, right? I think that what the um the setup is a little bit um I don't want to say coincidental. Fortuitous. Because isn't uh don't they say that Mr or I should say General Rios is actually like assigned to Cywina. Yeah, so he he was basically 
it was he was put there because he was too troublesome at court. He doesn't fit in with the etiquette. He offends the dandies and the Lord Admirals. These are all his words. And but he's too effective a general for them to just get rid of him. So they I guess they put him on this backwater planet of Siwena to kind of keep him there until they need him. Right. And so he uh, he catches wind of this these magicians. Right. And he's curious and he knows that there are there are like rumors floating around. And then he approaches Doosan Bar as kind of like, you know, somebody who's been around. Right. Who might hear uh, have heard the hearsay. Right. Right. And um, and he's right because he does know through his experience from his father and through his own research and has some information for Mr. Rios. I was surprised when he started asking him about break bills and I was excited that we were going to meet Quentin Coldwater finally, but am I getting my books mixed up again, guys? Uh, Every, every episode, Peter, but it's okay. We still welcome back to our magicians podcast. (laughs) So what I what I like is that we're still getting summaries from the foundation, the the Encyclopedia Galactica. I know. I thought we'd like abandon that thing. No, man, it's still <laughs> the fa- like for the you know, ruse that it was. Were you not paying attention when Brent was teaching us how important the reference to the future publishing of the Encyclopedia Galactica ten twenty fe? I'm sorry. Foundational there. era. Are you speaking? Yeah, foundational era for a thousand years. So in 1020, the Encyclopedia Galactica gets published, apparently. So it foreshadows for us clearly that By the, the Selden's terminize? path is uh, is legitimate. I thought I don't we kind know, of like I, diverted resources from this thing to like you know, go trade. We stopped hearing about it. You're right. But is I don't know if it stopped happening. It must be. It must be. Or maybe they rewrote history after the new empire took hold in the year 1000. And they wrote the past, rewrote the past. And that's what we're reading. I mean, it seems like they're trying to, they're fairly uh, even keeled with their analysis. They talk about the last great emperor. If you were trying to uh, rewrite history to unify a people, you would probably just talk about how corrupt and evil or whatever your opponents were. I was being slightly facetious. So Dan. Yeah, Jason. As our newest member of the podcast, Mm -hmm. what for you was the biggest shocker as you read through the first few chapters of book two? Can I speculate? (laughs) The question is for Dan, Peter. Sure. Was it Miss Cleo's appearance? (laughs) Uh, no no it wasn't you were expecting her was it in the cards <laughs> no I, it, you know everything about Cleon was about what you'd, you'd think this is kind of a done situation you know the empire seems what it is they don't have a lot of knowledge they don't have a lot of information that that's useful they're working on old ships a lot of it seemed seemed sort of what i expected it to be what i found surprising was that the empire knew that little about the foundation yeah they just have no idea you know they're having to 
they're having to basically ask a guy who is descendant of a guy who once met a guy to try to get some information about the foundation 40 years ago yeah it wasn't like (laughs) eons ago it was 40 years ago that's like that's the best plan they've they've ginned up in these in all this time you know a lot of the other ways in which they you know they behave like a bumbling sort of uh decaying bureaucracy that that stuff seemed right on point but i guess it sort of ties together that you know as such they have no ability to conduct reconnaissance or you know think outside the box or anything but i found that a little bit surprising to me to put it in context we've got a 40 year old encounter that is highly mysterious available through hearsay from Dusum Bar, the progeny of the encounterer at the time. We have a couple hundred years of foundation, right? Is it even a couple hundred? Is It's like a hundred and change, right? Yeah, maybe not even 200, I thought. It's but. not even 200 years of foundation activity. The Galactic Emperor has no idea what the foundation is out in the periphery there. Yeah. But our boy... Rios has studied every um, occurrence of the enclosure combat strategy starting some 2,000 years ago with Loras VI. So we've got accurate military conquest records back 2,000 years, ripe for the studying, but recent events are highly elusive. It's it's a, a strange situation, and I don't know if that's an, a reflection of the centralized control of the empire looking back very far to the kind of stable and secure records of the past and not being able to kind of keep track of what's going on in the present, or if it's just like not good writing. <laughs> it, well, I, I think of it, it through back to remember in the first book when they talked about how, oh, you know, if you want to be an expert at something, you just read, you don't try to do it yourself. You just read about a person who did it before, you know, they basically from a made the case that like, oh, yeah, like, sure, I, if I wanted to learn about military conquest, I'd just read about how they did it a thousand years ago. And they probably haven't, you know, there's nobody writing new history in the last hundred years. They're just sort of parroting old history, you know. I wonder so, if it's indicative about the uh, number of changeovers that have happened, like, in the Galactic Empire as a whole, right? So, like, four or five regime changes over, I don't know, two or three years, let's say, like we have no idea how many emperors there's been since the founding of the foundation, the exile terminus, if you will. Yeah, I mean, is it is Cleon the first? Was there 17 piouses before Cleon the first? You know, probably. <laughs> you know. Right. Well, Cleon is uh, a legacy. His father apparently was the one who unseated the usurper who probably unseated a usurper who unseated a usurper who unseated a usurper before him, you know, but he I believe is the, the term is, uh, the term is fail son. Somebody who inherited the throne without inherited, actually totally, yeah, without yeah. conquering and without any force. sort of like, you know, achievement, but he is called a strong emperor. So he must be politically savvy, right? To some degree. I mean, he's, he's, he's stated to be an effective emperor or one of the, the great emperors. He knows how to use, like, the most hated noble to his benefit, right? His his boy, we didn't mention him yet, but Bodrig. These mm. names are fantastic, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Bodrig is a lowborn, hated 
noble who is his uh, secretary or something. Um, yeah. They basically said as, as part of the discussions with Bill Rios that, yeah, he was going to get essentially an envoy. It's so, like some kind of imperial babysitter to a certain extent, uh, imperial errand boy type guy, you know, and he's like, it can't be helped. You know, there's some foreshadowing there, but, you know, he's kind of like, look, it's just this is the way it goes. You know, Empire, Empire imperial bureaucracy, you know, this is how it goes. Just play the game. I'm a little baffled that they lost, like, the ability to um, make good starships. That's one of the things that I found confusing. Did all, like, the artisans and technologically sound engineers, like, you, you have blueprints to build these things, right? Presumably... They keep saying, like, oh, the parts aren't available, you know. Oh, the, you know, they haven't had parts available for that. You know, whether it's just they lost the, the technological processes to actually manufacture things. And then it was basically like, even if you knew how to, knew what it was, you, know, you couldn't make it. Um, and so it's not totally clear to me whether it's like you know, a lack of, you know, people to operate the machines. But I, I would tie it the same as like the nuclear stuff where they have people who like have a rudimentary understanding of how things work. But like as soon as something goes wrong, like the thing just goes off the rails. And like nobody right. can kind of fix it or improve it. It's not that can. far off from exist like what's going on right now. Right. Yeah. So you got like the car manufacturers that can't yep. get these microchips that were, you know, perfected in the 90s or what have you. you, you I mean, you're seeing the signs of the decay of the empire. Not to start our, you know, episode one, season two podcast off on a doomsday note, <laughs> but I'm going to start it off on a doomsday note. I did some, re I would call it research, or I watched a couple of videos on the Bronze Age collapse. Hold on, are you are you conducting a meta analysis based on uh, <laughs> the study of other meta analyses? Yes. Awesome. Sounds totally legit. For the yeah. purposes of hoarding tin. That's why it's so yeah. So um, this is yeah because we we need to be able to make bronze, and so this is relevant. So the Bronze Age collapse. The, one of the theories behind why it happened, uh, I guess there was this period of Dark Ages that happened after the Bronze Age collapse was due to the complexity and interconnected web of the international trade, and that when things started to go wrong, which they're still not entirely sure what happened, it, it may have been a series of droughts that led to poor crop yields followed by raider attacks from uh, the peoples of the sea. So I don't know if they were um, like Vikings, but uh, <clears throat> basically these raiding seafaring people. And they were just like going from kingdom to kingdom, like destroying all of these other like important pieces of this international trade system. And now we're kind of seeing something similar on a global perspective with the shutdowns that have occurred. And I don't know if you want to call it a labor revolution, but there's something going on with labor where you can't get good help um, in at least low skill paying jobs or, or uh, unskilled labor. And you're starting to see this breakdown of this highly complex global trade web Right. So you can't get microchips from China for this one thing. And somehow it affects an entirely different industry all the way on the other edge. Um, yeah, I, I had similar thoughts reading through it just because of that. Yeah, you can see a lot of it. I think the, the one difference I would put is that some of it, you know, it seems like that historically in the book, it's more just due to like lack of knowledge. I think there's a lot of sort of you know, there's there's been an economic drive in the country to to sort of 
lean the supply chain and, you know, thinking that there's no cost to that. And in actuality, the longer and it's just in time manufacturing, stuff like that, it works great until it doesn't. And then it doesn't exactly where we're at. Yep. So I just think there's, you know, there's the same thoughts kind of came into my head about, oh, you know, people have just can't get the parts. And I'm like, tell me about it. (laughs) Um, But I think that it, to to turn your your doom loop into a more positive note, I think there's still like the skill the ability in the general sense of of people who have knowledge to actually make the stuff. It's the question, but th- your other point is a salient one. Do you have the workforce to actually you know have the the ability and willingness to sort of operate the machines? And I guess given that there's no sort of you know historical reference in the book at this point you know it could be a little of both you know could mm-hmm. be that the people were like look you know we're not working for these these guys anymore you know they've been they've ripped us off too much and we just kind of on strike and it could be that just it's incompetence and then yeah, everybody the last guy who knew how to run the machine was just it died out you know they're asking yeah. a guy from 40 years ago if he knows how to operate the you know the power plant you know because they heard he might might have it you know he can't yeah, get that sweet, sweet point. vegan tobacco anymore. So now he's walking. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I'm out. I saw Rios for smoking some cigarettes this time. Yeah, I don't know if that's a higher class or lower class than Hober Mallow with his uh, I think it's his bare backs, cheroot smoking, uh, you know, or, or the, the other previous guy with the snuff. I don't know where the, the class structure is with regards to the tobacco products. but I mean, that pipe was made from real sandworm tooth. So <laughs> it's more of a crisp pipe, I guess. Yes, crisp pipe, nice. He busted it out once or twice, but no one else, no hey. one really had any proof because they got killed afterwards. But yeah, to kind of reverse my doomsday uh, prediction. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I mean, but other people might have something to say, also, Peter. Well, they're less like less handy before less you change the subject. Listen, I have the most important things to say. <laughs> so one thing that you know, I. I'm trying to figure this out too. Like why, why is it collapsing? We talked about this a little bit in season one. Like there's no other, you know, entrepreneurial minded or ambitious politically minded people in under the galactic empire, you know, domain. It's only in the foundation where this creativity is happening and the pioneering invention of new products and, and clever wares and things like that. And I think about, you know, like different countries. And for me, the, the analogy is big country, but, and a lot of people, but reliant on, you know, to your point about the microchips, put, taking it up a step to like the, the starship, you know, level, like the, the, the top of the food chain of the supply chain, if you will. If you look at like defense, uh, defense products, right, there are three major defense product producing nations. There's other minor you know, players and unions of countries that produce defense products, but it's basically Russia, China, and the U.S. Those are the three countries developing, like, organic defense products. And then the European Union, you know, as a conglomerate, has developed some competing products and things like that. But you have all these other minor countries throughout the world, and they're buying their defense products from one of those three big producers, right? And what happens is while they're supported, everything goes great. And while they're friends with the big guy, you know, everything is just peachy. 
but then, you know, some uh, rebellious politician comes in and uh, converts Venezuela to an authoritarian dis- dictatorship under the guise of, you know, communist revolution. All of a sudden, all those U.S. assets are not getting parts. They're not getting serviced properly. And they may still have them, but they're like sitting on a runway collecting dust or corroding or, you know, and they don't have the institutional infrastructure in place to overcome that inertia. Like there's a barrier to entry for certain things that you just, you know, you have to be organized and you have to be focused and you have to have the right mechanisms in place. And when I think about this galactic empire, I think of like, you know, open lines of, of transportation are like falling apart, right? They don't have the ability to go to all these places that they used to, right? The periphery is, you know, barely accessible, except by some kind of pioneering excursion by some rogue general. It's the, this is the first time that the, they've made their way out to the foundation as, you know, the empire since the beginning of the foundation. That's crazy, right? And uh, if this is happening all over the empire, then everything is just kind of rotting without access to the things that made it great at a certain point when it had access to open transportation, open, you know, uh trade and products with, you know, different, uh, you know, nation worlds, if you will, that had different specialties and contributions to the, to the cause. So Mm -hmm. they can barely build a first rate hypernuclear motor these days. They can't, they They can't can't build a first rate hypernuclear motor. Well, it's funny that, I mean, you, you mentioned it sort of like with nucleics, but I mean, like how, like to your point, Jason, if you got to get a nuclear submarine, you, you get it from America, like the, the, right. yeah, I mean, or like a, or like an aircraft carrier or something like that. Like who has aircraft carriers? Uh, America does. And like, you know, China sort of has, you know, the one sort of, but like, they're just, even that the, you'd call them the second highest producing country in the world. They're still largely cheap knockoffs of sort of American technology. Like, yep. you know, we're not that far away from a situation where, you know, like that people are starting to realize in general, like, everything looks super robust when you really look under the hood, you know, there's, there's certain pieces and, and, and certain technologies and things that are, you know, there's not tremendous amount of robustness of supply, especially when you talk about, you know, nucleic and high level sort of technological goods. There's not that many places you can get them, even if you wanted to, if you had the billions of dollars to pay for them. And the other, I mean, the other part of it is you have like all of the people who have helped bring that, aircraft carrier into existence and all the companies involved and all the people who operate it and service it, you know, there's a certain will behind those people to make it happen. And it's a lot of institutional support that is required to keep that thing healthy and and well, right? If that starts to crumble, like if America starts to become like a really crappy place or war breaks out in, you know, uh, you know, from if if California decides to secede from the nation, like, you know, just like things start to crumble and fall apart and we get, you know, these crazy politicians, you know, uh, starting wars between militias and states and stupid stuff like that. You know, some of that support infrastructure is going to fall apart 
And, you know, again, it's like we we forget how fragile things are when times are good because everything's great, right? But, mm. you know, it's great that we can get all these cheap products, but that lean supply chain that brought us that cheap product is very costly when something bad happens that closes the the uh, the transportation down or access to certain suppliers or things like that. So, mm. yeah. The we benefit. All children of summer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's there's there's there, there's a book that I like that I, I read and like that, you know, there's a couple of them actually that speak to these types of things where, you know, there's a certain like similar to foundation. There's certain arcs to history where, you know, people who have grown up their entire lives, you know, you think about the last sort of like catastrophic period in America, essentially like Great Depression, World War Two era, everyone who basically fought in World War II is basically not around anymore to, to slap everyone on the back of the head and say, you know, I mean, it's more of the people who were around just before World War II who were like, hey, look, things were fantastic in the 20s. And we thought it was, you know, everything was just piece of, was gravy. And little did we know then that we were pre- prepping for a fall and that institutional knowledge is gone. And you just history sort of finds a way of repeating its mistakes because, you know, a hundred years, everyone who knew was around and knew what was going on is not there anymore, you know? And, and um, you know, there's people like a, like a Dusum bar or an Odom bar who knew of a, you know, but like it even says it in the book, you know, he, he talks about the cycle history. He talks about how he believes it, but you know, it's imagine reporting that back to the emperor. It sounds really far fetched. Just one guy saying something, you know, in actuality, knowing what you know you read his words and you're like this guy gets it and you know bel rio is just kind of like well i don't know about that you know that's the reality situation they're gonna find out the hard way that that's uh, well so yeah i i i like how that's kind of coming back to the story here because we got on a bit of a of a political philosophy aside there and uh but yeah so he uh do some bar uh kind of taunts bell rios at a certain point and says like you're gonna fail like whether you succeed or you fail you're gonna fail like it's in it's already been yeah (laughs) predetermined through harry selden's understanding of the future based on psychohistory right like you know um you're destined to fail so like why are you even trying kind of thing but he's bell rios is like determined he's like no, you know, I am, you know, I'm an individual who can, has free will and I will conquer and I know what I'm doing. And, and, uh, so yeah. So what do you guys think about that? Well, going back to your comment earlier, about um, is there nobody with ambition? I mean, I think the problem is that there's people with ambition, but they have no, yeah. Ideals, poorly directed ambition. It was like, yeah, I meant creative ambition, not destructive ambition. Like, yeah, they're fighting over scraps, right? Yeah, and that's what that's part of the problem. I mean, the whole premise is that of the the story is that humanity is going to act in predictable manners when you get a large enough crowd. Essentially, like you're going to be able to figure out. You can plug in the variables and kind of plot the future of history. Everything kind of comes together to these singular points and whoever is in play at those points, that's what matters, right? Not necessarily that Rios is an ambitious general. If he was an ambitious general, when everything wasn't kind of falling into place, it wouldn't matter. 
It's just that this is where all of the other variables have kind of started to point to. And I think, yeah, to, to state the corollary, if it wasn't Bell Rios, who is the ambitious general at the time that things are falling together, some other ambitious general would step to that, you know, he would get queued up naturally through the course of psycho history's predictions to take that role, take on that role. Right. right. Yeah. He's but, both exceptional and doomed to fate. Yeah. And unexceptional. I mean, I, I was reading a, a book about um, the, the 14, 1500s and, and they talked about Christopher Columbus and people think about Christopher Columbus, like, Oh, he's this, you know, singular man through history. And they're like, well, actually he's just one of a hundred guys who, you know, sail. So like somebody, if it wasn't Columbus and somebody else would, it was, there was a bunch of ambitious sort of sailor types who were just going out to try to find riches. If Columbus, you know, got sick that day, you know, somebody else would have stepped in his shoes and been some, the other guy who sailed and found America, you know, like part of it is, yes, he was an ambitious person, but there's a hundred ambitious people, you know, if Bill Rios, you know, you know, his, his, his broken down ship never made it far enough. You know, somebody else would have probably taken the same thing. Um, you know, and, and the, the situation was ripe for somebody to do that work and whether it's, it's Bill Rios or somebody else, you know, the end result of, and the arc of history is not going to be any different, but at the same time, like somebody has got to do it, you know, right. so good on Del Rios for doing so. But, um, well, I don't think I think he's shaping up to be one of the main antagonists uh, of the story currently. Right. The emperor doesn't seem like a real threat. Based on the excerpt from the Encyclopedia Galactica, it sounds like there's nobody after him (laughs) that is quite as ambitious and great as he is. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens to him, you know. Well. I think this is a good time to bring up um, something I'd like to start bringing up once a once a once a podcast, which is our uh, most unnecessarily unnecessarily futuristic or nuclear powered devices in the uh, Foundation series, and I'd like to nominate the Force Pillow, which is a pillow <laughs> that works off a a force field of some kind. <laughs> and I don't understand why the emperor needs this. Well, he's clearly and, in ill health. The emperor. He, yes. He's clearly great. ill. And I'm wondering if having his like brain bombarded with neutrinos every time he puts <laughs> his head on his pillow <laughs> is having anything to do with his failing health. Maybe it's just like, constant nuclear bombardment <laughs> from radioactive isotopes. Yeah. <laughs> every essence of his being. Yeah, probably it's, couldn't hurt. I, there's like there's the I was a historical Chinese emperor who was obsessed with mercury and just had it around him all the time because it was liquid at room temperature. Like it was fantastic, you know, for a while, and then he just went insane because he had mercury just like all around him all the time. Maybe that's yeah, it's very perceptive. I didn't pick that part up, you know, and it maybe maybe not, but I guess in nineteen whatever fifty three, did they know that like I'm, nuclear fusion was? I mean, I guess. They had to know. Massive amounts of energy like well, being released and Marie not Curie. Massive, I mean, yeah, Marie Curie had massive. run her course at that point, right? Mm. Yeah. Right? So they knew that right. She was the one who kind of made it publicly no. apparent that radiation is not good for you, right? Mm. Right. 
I think maybe, Queen, maybe that's Queen Elizabeth one would have probably been okay with this kind of pillow because of her lead based paint that she covered all of her, her whole face with <laughs> as the Virgin queen. Yeah. Jason's giving me wide eyes. I did not know notice. that. I did yeah. not yeah. know I, that. I learned so, so much on this podcast by just listening. The white uh, makeup that she would put on to make her look, you know, more, I, I guess, angelic and virginal in the eyes of her, uh, her people was basically just like straight lead-based paint. So, and that's why they used to use lead in paint was because it was so white. Make it white, did, yeah. Like the whites were so great. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's also delicious. And so yeah. all those kids and dogs that eat is, it. That's sweet, sweet that's sweet, sweet lead. It's delicious. Well, it's, it's like asbestos. It's, it's, say we about asbestos. It's a fantastic fire retardant. Some would say it's just asbestos. It's just, yes, asbestos, <laughs> asbestos is the best. Asbestos. Is the best. Well, it's funny because it, there are places out in the world where it's readily available and sold that don't have the same sort of, you know, issue with uh, mesothelioma that America does. But, um, you know, it's, it's like, oh, yeah, externalities that are problematic. They just didn't know them at the time. Right. But I guess, you know, maybe they, that that's all they have. But, yeah, I, I would agree with you that, you know, I mean, I, I I hate it as much as anyone else when my pillow is not not properly fluffed and and it it's sort of like it falls down overnight. But I don't know that. I would think the static hum on your face would be distracting <laughs> at night, though. Like, I just I imagine this like, thing having a charge. Yeah. It's pressing it seems on like my Cleo face. Got, got bigger problems. And it doesn't sound like he's long for this earth anyway. So maybe the you know something else seems to be getting him long before the radiation. You know, um, at this point, maybe he, it's all the he, hack doctors he's letting in. He says he's seeing hundreds of doctors. He knows like, that's not a healthcare plan, man. He knows their hacks. Yeah, they can't do anything without a book in front of them reading how they're supposed to do stuff. That's what he yeah. says. Oh, was right? that the implication? I the thought implication they is they're like, all dumb. They're not real doctors. Yeah, they're not diagnosticians. They're, they're just they're they're meta analyzers of healthcare indicators it's like general hospital they're like it's a guy playing a doctor he knows the lines <laughs> that's a great analogy like, i would like probably to... is very attractive he has a nice white coat but he has is completely a is a shell comes from a good family i'm sure yeah but is the drama good <laughs> but you know there are other uh some other gadgets in here that befuddled me um, that I would like to throw into the hat, you know, into the ring, not into the hat, into the ring. I'd like to throw at least one other uh, unnecessary, potentially unnecessary um, technology into the ring. The three-dimensional map. Like, do you guys recall that when he's like, yeah, he, you, you've clearly never fought in space. It, yeah. He's like challenging, like do some bar, like, yeah, but can do you know how to read a three-dimensional map? <laughs> Have you ever viewed a map in radial? Um, yeah, radian dimensions or polar dimensions or something like that. <laughs> polar, radial polar dimensions. Map. Have you ever read a map in the time time dimension rather than the space <laughs> distance? <laughs> the time domain? A temporal map? Your transform of the map? Yeah, a, a, a mathematics that is clearly beyond anyone in the Empire. At this point, <laughs> three dimensional geometries are beyond the average man. We only, yeah, oh, we can only handle two dimensional geometries. <laughs> it's 
like Tron. Exactly. It's like Tron. <laughs> and then if nobody's going to throw another one out there, I would like to understand what is a nuclear puncher and why is that not an explosive? I, you know what it sounds oh, yeah. like to me? It sounds like a, like almost like a jackhammer. That's what I kind of interpreted it as. Like it was designed to knock out walls and debris. And it's probably like a large compressed yeah. air gun or something like that. That's powered by mm. an unnecessarily yeah. unnecessary <laughs> nuclear reactor. It's like a slide hammer key, except it, well, it's like there's technology like that for, for, for electrical splicing where it's like the plosive splices were basically like it's it's there's like a gunpowder explosion that provides the impetus to actually mechanically connect certain things but why would Uh, you leave it laying around on seven i mean that's just reckless yeah i don't know (laughs) because without the safety on right exactly generally yeah go ahead generally he's you know you're not you're not thinking that uh you know, your goods are going to get hijacked and, you know, attempt. Maybe that's the point, though. It's like a security measure where, like, if the goods do get hijacked by some schmo that he's basically just going to point at his face and and pull the trigger. And that's, you know, all you need to sort of, like, get a one up on him to get away. I don't know. I think it was an unfortunate accident. <laughs> that's the story. And he's sticking to it. <laughs> that's the story. I mean, he would have done something if there weren't seven men sitting on his chest. Yeah, well. A lot of dudes sitting on your chest. And I I liked his angle, um, bringing it back to the story, uh, Lathan's angle of kind of talking down his, probably talking down his his opinion of the foundation. Oh, I'm just a lowly merchant. And I, what matters, like, does it matter to me who's in charge? They get a cut of my pay no matter what. I don't care who's running the show back home. It could be the Empire. It could be the boys on Terminus. It really doesn't matter to me. Yeah. So if you offer me a better deal, I'm willing to take it. Yeah. Right. The traitor. The traitor. With, with a D. <laughs> the traitor who's a traitor. Not a T. <laughs> no, he could be for the right price, you know. He's just right. He's just right. Neg- he's sent out to negotiate, you know. Yeah. This is one of the tools the Foundation has, right? This, that, that's the whole point of Chapter yeah. 2, right? Is we have this unknown threat from the Empire. We're going to send out the boys. We're going to send out the traitors. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I agree with Dan that, uh, you know, when I first – because I had to reread this again uh, for tonight's show. Um, when I first read it, I did not quite grasp why – chapter two was in the book, uh, even after I got through it. Uh, but after going back earlier today and rereading it, um, it really jumped out at me on the last page where they kind of settle in and, um, they say, we need spies. They have a sense of what's going on. They have information from some underlings from Rios that they've captured. They've captured one of his ships, but, they uh, they don't know enough because they don't have Rios. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're kind of setting the stage, right? Is that mm-hmm. they're still trying to the foundation's still trying to do things through mostly peaceful means. Um, and I think the real purpose of the chapter is to introduce us to Pharrell 
Yeah. Clearly. He's, yeah. Clearly. Yeah. So, it's the only yeah. guy that gets there's, named. So. Right. There's four dudes in a room and the big man. man talking is Senate Pharrell, who's the bastard son of my boy. Albert Mallow. Yes. Marshmallow. Yep. Hey, man, you hang out down to the skin. Well, all the I wonder, time like as that? I'm saying, I wonder if Pharrell is in down to the skin with his with his uh, <laughs> smoking cigars, smoking cigars with his with his glistening yeah, dark skin. Gut. Yep. So, Peter, you brought up an interesting point about you know we're still seeing heavy usage of sardonic in the first few chapters here. <laughs> yeah. I'm giving you a sardonic look right now. Yes, yeah, I think we've registered at least two occurrences. In this, there's uh, exactly two. Exactly and, I was, two. and I mean, it didn't top our five that we got in one of the chapters <laughs> right. in the first book. Isomoff seems to have a uh, a real attraction to that. Yes, yes. And um, I will say that it does show up in that era, like in other stories by other authors. It's uh, just something of that era. Maybe it was Some, a common, commonly used word at the time that's faded over time. Something in the zeitgeist. No, I, was, I mean it's it's kind of interesting because what I was when I it's a word you sort of understand but don't you know totally you know it's like as a, a person who's very sarcastic in general you know right. it's kind of it's it's up your alley but it's like well what's the difference between being sarcastic and being sardonic and it seems like sardonic is much more like scornful you know almost like. I have the upper hand and look at you, you know, you're so not my equal that yeah. I can just smile sardonically. So the question is whether I that's have on earned, my face during the entire podcast, basically. whether that's earned or not, you know, it's sort of, it's unclear, you know, somebody can be like sardonic, but does that mean it actually comes from a position of strength or just doing it because they don't know any better? Right. A perception of a position of strength. Yeah. Dan, are you trying to say that you say the most important things on this podcast? <laughs> uh, I, I've never said that. <laughs> putting word, sardonic like, words in my mouth. <laughs> I would like to uh, ask for your help because I haven't done any research on this, but this is not the first time this word I don't think has come up. I think it came up in book one as well. General Belrios admires Dusambar, uh because in his day he was a chauvinist. <laughs> now, I know that we've adopted male chauvinism as a bad thing, but I don't think that phrase invented the word chauvinism. And I don't know that without the word male in front of it at the time that chauvinism meant something bad. Chauvinism means excessive or prejudiced support for one's own caused group or sex. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, I think it's so a chauvinist it like in terms a, of his cause or his, yeah. you know, like he was a leader of the Cywenian people. Yeah, he could be a Sewenian, Sewenian chauvinist, you know, right. basically. Right. It depends, depends what group you're articulating it for. Yeah. Um, it's like now, saying it in a, in a yeah. bunch of dudes when a story with nothing but dudes, you know, sort of implies you just sort of right as the bat think it's a male chauvinist. Right, but. right. Yeah, but I don't think it I don't think it is, but it's it doesn't help his cause <laughs> at all. <laughs> no. The modern day is people pick this up and start reading it. But he he conquered the uh, like the evil viceroy, mm -hmm. right? He had he mm -hmm. assassinated him, so he like stood up for his cause and led his people to a kind of a new era, right? Mm -hmm. Britannica.com, uh, Chauvinism, <laughs> Galactica.com. Yep, 
it originally meant uh, like an ultra nationalism. Yeah, so apparently it comes from a guy, uh, Nicolas Chauvin, who was a French soldier who got like a relatively minor award from Napoleon. And then he basically kind of worshipped Napoleon and Napoleonic, you know, way of life. And somehow that word, you know, it turned into a, chauvinism. Yeah. yeah. So people I, started referring to other peers as chauvinists. and Yeah. yeah. I, I would, what I was trying to say before was kind of like, it's not necessarily that long ago – um, you know, somebody would, wouldn't have a feeling that their group is superior, but I think, you know, being, you know, if you look at, at, at Dusenbar, for instance, somebody who is, is at his age and has seen what he's seen, it's hard to maintain, you know, seeing what he's seeing that type of chauvinistic viewpoint when you're sort of like over, he's kind of over it, you know, mm. necessarily have the thing where he could be chauvinistic because he just is like, he's seen you too know, much. They've seen too much to to really have that something that you associate more with somebody like vigor, like exactly like like a Bell Rioche who's just like you know doesn't know, hasn't seen enough to know that that you know it's going to come around on you one way or the other. Um, And there's a new swear word. Did you guys catch it? Well, you said it earlier, Dan. I like it. Two puffs of a of a nuclear emanation. Oh. And it's spoken by yes. our boy, the progeny of Mallow, Pharrell. Pharrell? Yeah. And if smoking gets a, nu- pass, smoking a nuclear cigar. I want to talk about maybe it's maybe overused nucleics. His, his nuclear lighter might. <laughs> nuclear cigar lighter? <laughs> cigar lighter might be overdone there. Breathe but for directly like Pharrell, you understand it. Zero side effects except for mysterious illnesses that cannot yeah. be cured. Yeah. So I I think to to kind of wind things down here, um, what is your prediction of what happens next? Hold on, let me dabble in some spice first, and then I'll get it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you go ahead first, Dan? Or what are you looking um, forward to? It doesn't have to be a prediction, but like what 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 are I we mean, gearing up it, for here? It, it they lay it on pretty thick here in terms of. You know, uh, premonitions. So you gotta imagine that. I mean, it's it's not even worth describing because they kind of put it in the beginning of the chapter. Like it doesn't go well for Bill Bill Rios or the Emperor in the in the medium term. So you know, you gotta imagine that. You know, since Bill Rios is kind of, um. You know, making, uh, make, trying, trying to launch an invasion of the foundation that it's probably going to work out badly for him. Um, but, you know, my sense is just, I've kind of looked forward to that happening because he struck me as, you know, somewhat of a, somewhat of a, uh, you know, try hard a little bit. Um, sometimes you like to see those people got to come up and especially when he, he clearly doesn't know what he doesn't know, but he's kind of running into it full steam. So, you know, it's a matter of how that goes about, you know, he seems part of it seems like, oh, he's he's this military genius and he studied all these maneuvers and he knows whatever. And like, it seems like his entire thing is him underestimating the skill set and history and knowledge base of the foundation and, you know, having this sort of self-important empire imperial viewpoint. He's liable to get, you know, smacked in the nose when he tries to actually, you know, complete his task. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that happens. 
whether, you know, with the foundation, it usually seems like it's not how you think it's going to go. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to see. It seems obvious that he's going to meet a bad end. It's just how that bad end is, is going to be, you know, sort of how it's going to kind of come about. Peter. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty clear that there's going to be some kind of showdown between, you know, the traitors acting as spies or, uh, some kind of subterfuge going on. Um, some last, you know, minute betrayal or, you know, the, the goods that somehow he trades stop working or they stop working as intended. Um, but not necessarily not as advertised, right? There'll be some kind of tricky loop um, so that our guy, um, you know, isn't a liar. It'll be something interesting like that. What I'm totally in the dark in is that this seems to be the setup for the first half of the book. I don't, I have no idea what's going to happen in the second half, right? That's like a whole, there's going to be like a hard line in the sand and you're, I think you're going to have this hard break and moving into like an entirely new era, more likely. Okay. What I am interested in in seeing, although I think it's kind of a pipe dream at this point. Um, you remember the the Compta and the Comptes and their little back yeah. and forth mm-hmm. from the you know the last chapter of the first book. How could uh, we forget? Yeah. So I I am interested in seeing if we will see her legacy in any way, shape or form in the coming novel. Um, Cause she's got an, she, she's the only woman, right? So that's interesting in its own right. I don't even think she's named, but she's the Comtesse, right? Com- um, Comdora. Comdora. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. I, not I, there's no words. other, o, there's only one O the first O com or the, I'm sorry. There's not three O's. There's only Comdora. How's it spelled, Jay? How's it spelled? There's Comdor, no comma. Comador. It's not comma. Yeah, it's not a computer. It's not a computer. <laughs> it's, it's the com door. It's a com yeah. door. Yeah. It's not a com door. It's a com door. It's not a it's bird. It's a condor. So I got it. It's not a bird. Like a communication. So, sorry, door. I've been reading When the Tripods Came uh, and the White Mountains. And the, the Comtesse is the name of the, um, the queen who, yeah. or for lack of a better term, who yeah. runs like a local region. So I'm mixing up the two, yeah. uh, that's, that, but I'm interested in that's seeing not this if she has, yeah. she has some kind of, yeah, she has some <laughs> kind of legacy like that. We're reaching out from cause she was the Comdor's whole basically strong arm, right? He mm. it was the, it's her financial I would call, and yeah, call her his crutch, right? He leaned on, the legacy of her family and their economic power to provide resources, right. To right. Did, rule his world. Did, did they, did she, did she get a callback that I recall during one of these chapters where somebody mentioned marrying their daughter off to, to, um, to somebody over there. And yeah. I, to some barbarian mind. King. Yeah. Some barbarian yeah. planet. And she was stationed there. And it seemed to me that that was who they were referring to, but um, was that in, in yeah. book one or or, the, or the no? First I wanted book? to say it was like in, it been in a chapter chapter two maybe or something. I don't know. It's I, or I recall it somewhere. So obviously, yeah, just cut too. just cut this because it's not 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 relevant enough. <laughs> I know what you're talking about because I remember for somebody the who's for, but purportedly I just don't remember has read where. this book. 
<laughs> no, she yep. de- you're definitely right. They definitely refer to it. Um, so we're going to keep this in. Great. I'm not going to be the only one who looks stupid on this podcast. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. The, the other the other point that, that I was interested in finding out, I mean, just kind of not to, to go with the sci-fi tropes, but my understanding of the book structures, you know, kind of it was written initially as a trilogy, and this is kind of the middle book where – in general, like much like Empire Strikes Back or whatever, it, you know, I'm, I've always enjoyed this the sort of second part of three story arcs because it's not just the everyone goes home happy and, you know, the hero saves the day type of stuff. So I'm interested to see sort of how that how that shakes out, too. So what I'm hearing is that you're a broken man and you like when the like the imaginary world that you're visiting <laughs> mirrors what's inside of you. Everything's at a low point. All hope is lost. It's a cromulent explanation. (laughs) Psychohistory. Watch your mouth. (laughs) Perfectly cromulent. What about you, Jay? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Yeah, I think I'm I'm mostly aligned with uh, with where you're at because when you know when I'm looking at these characters and I look at Rios and he seems to be a little bit in conflict with the Emperor. Um. But he's also doing everything in the name of the Empire. So it's clear that he's kind of like he's written in as the last, you know, of his type, of his, you know, greatness. Just like the the Emperor's, the last of his greatness. So they're both the last, right? So what really, you know, happens on the side of the Empire after things fall out and then... You know, how does that fallout occur? Because in the first conflicts, and I was, you know, also surprised to see that they only noted three crises. So now at this point, all of the crises, <laughs> crises, <laughs> all of the crises have been um, resolved with minimal uh human sacrifice, to use your phraseology, <laughs> Peter. Yeah. The altars yeah. are dry. Bloodshed. You know, there's no real bloodshed happening to resolve these crises or crises. <laughs> Sorry. Mm. <laughs> Jesus Christ. In these trials. Jesus Christ. None of them, none of them requires say. anyone to actually get, you know, people. Right. Like, I mean, there's some. After Obama's trial, the guy should hot recure himself because right, he's so right, old. Right. Right. It seems actually... like there's some collateral damage, uh, some marginal collateral damage, but nothing like, you know, all out attrition warfare kind of situation. Mm. Right. And Weenus um, notwithstanding. Right, right. He, take, he takes his own, you know, livelihood. But um, so where, like, how is this all going to happen again peacefully when this guy is just, he's loaded for bear and he's hungry for blood, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Can they possibly avert <clears throat> bloodshed or... Are they actually going to face war? And, you know, through the whole first book, it was like, you know, they managed to skate out of every conflict, you know, with this sly, clever maneuver. And Mm. uh, it's just like, you know, how many times can you look, look it in the face and and laugh at it before something bites you? We'll we'll see. I mean, they they kind of going back to when they said that that violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Um, you know, maybe the that foundation's angle is that they're uber competent. And as a result, they're always able to sort of like, you know, talk their way out of it. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see. 
I'm wondering if the seeds have already been planted for like the unwinding of our boy Rios with the visit to the emperor. Like once he turns the battleship, so to speak towards the threat that is Rios, like, is that, is that going to be Rios's undoing, right? Is it going to be more internal conflict within the empire that is ultimately the undoing of this, you know, gunslinger type general, uh, Ambitious imperial imperialist, right? An incompetent traitor, T R A I T O R, is no danger. It is rather the capable men who must be watched. And then he turns to his faithful secretary and says, You among them, Bodrig? And laughs it off, but makes his point, basically. So. The emperor's got a, a, a healthy skepticism of all of the strong members of his of his uh, aristocracy, if you will. So again, we're going to go for another five chapters for our next episode, uh, and further, um, you know, ride out this part one, which is quite long. So obviously, we need to break it up into smaller chunks, but. Looking forward to some of the unraveling of these mysteries. And uh, yeah, so thank you for joining us for our return in episode one of our season two of the Such Nerds podcast. I have been your host, Jason, with my dandy co-hosts, Peter and Dandy Dan. And we will see you next time. Have a good night, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Have a good night.